Hey, have you heard about Anchor? It's the easiest way to make a podcast. Let me explain. It's free. There's creation tools that let you record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer, just like I'm doing now. Anchor will distribute your podcast for you, so you can hear it on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and more. You can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to make a podcast all in one place. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Welcome to Journey to Esquire, the podcast. I'm Jocelyn Hardrick, founder and president of Diversity Access Pipeline, Inc., the company behind this podcast and other great programs like Journey to Esquire Scholarship and Leadership Program, which provides $2,000 cash scholarships to third-year law students and internships to second-year law students, along with leadership training and mentors. And Journey to Esquire, the blog, which provides insightful articles to help navigate you through law school and beyond. Find out more on our website, www.journeytoesquire.com. Hi, and welcome to Journey to Esquire. I'm Jocelyn Hardrick, founder and president of Diversity Access Pipeline, Inc., the company behind Journey to Esquire Scholarship and Leadership Program, Journey to Esquire the Podcast, and Journey to Esquire the Blog. Today, I'm so excited because we have with us Samia Sala, and she is one of our board members and has been with us since the beginning. Samia is a staff attorney at the Southern Poverty Law Center, and um, she's going to talk a little bit about herself, her journey to Esquire, and is going to talk about religious diversity with us today. So thank you so much, Samia, for joining us. How are you? I am doing well. I'm really excited to be here um, and to finally be contributing to this awesome podcast that Journey to Esquire has been putting on. Thank you. Thank you so much for making time. So talk to us about why you decided to become a lawyer. Um, so my journey to the law was definitely not a linear one and it was actually like a really last minute decision for me to even think of going to law school. It's not something I thought about growing up or was you know, planning toward or building up to. Um, but when I was an undergrad, the Syrian revolution sparked in Syria, the country that my parents are from. And generally at that, that time, there was the Arab Spring going on in the Middle East where there were popular uprisings across the Middle East, um, people demanding change against oppressive regimes. And the Syrian revolution was kind of like a life altering moment for me. Um, it really connected me to the country of my parents' origin in a way that I had never previously been connected. I got pretty involved with grassroots organizers on the ground in Syria. And just like a series of experiences over the course of a year or so really got me thinking differently about what I wanted to do with my life and with, with my career trajectory. And eventually led me to conclude that well, if I become an attorney, then perhaps that's one way that I can help advocate on behalf of victims of injustice um, when thinking about the severe injustices and the state-sanctioned murders um, happening in Syria and just thinking, like, there's got to be something that people can do to help advocate for victims of injustice. And so it was, like, super last minute. And I was like, hey, I guess maybe I'll become a lawyer. And the rest of the history. Yeah, actually, I've heard from a few people that that was their story. And I'm kind of like, wow, that seems like a big decision to make at the last minute. But, you know, everyone's path is different. And that's why we like to share the journeys. 
So tell us about your application process. And so it was such a last minute decision. How is it that you were able to navigate, you know, all the, the prerequisites for getting into law school? Yeah, so I was, you know, graduating undergrad in the spring. And in my mind, I was like, I want to start grad school in the fall. I don't want to put things off. Um, and I had started thinking about law school during that last semester of my undergrad experience. Um, and so I was frantic to find a way to make this happen in such a short time. Um, I was in Tampa at, at the time and wasn't looking to leave the Tampa area um, for law school. And so at the time, the two law schools in the area were Stetson and Cooley was just opening that summer, actually. Um, and I saw that Cooley had a rolling admissions process. And so if I took the LSAT that summer, I could theoretically start in the fall. Um, and it just made sense with the timeline that I was working with. I didn't really give it much thought. I didn't look into other law schools. I kind of just sat for the LSAT in June and applied for Cooley and started in the fall without much um, de deliberation. It's the only law school that I applied to and it was really that simple. Wow, so you got lucky too. So I've heard that from other people too, is that I just, like if I didn't get in and it would have been a different plan, <laughs> but since right. I got in, I made it work. So did you enjoy law school while you were at Cooley? I did. Um, it was definitely very, very overwhelming at first. I have no lawyers in my family. I didn't know lawyers. I was not um, really familiar with how our legal system operated. I didn't go to high school in the US, so even a lot of the courses that you take in high school that might kind of like prepare you for the bigger picture concept, that, that was not part of my education. Um, and so my first semester and even my second semester were really overwhelming. I felt like I was so far behind everybody in the room who knew what was going on. You know, I went to school with a lot of people who had worked as paralegals or, had, or who had some other experience with the legal system before law school. And so I felt like I was playing a lot of catch up on just generally what the legal field is like. Um, and then obviously there was the challenges of law school curriculum. It forces you to think in a different way, you learn in a different way, you test a different way. Um, but even with all those challenges, I by and large enjoyed my law school experience. Um, I enjoyed a lot of the, the classes that I took. It was it was challenging, and I enjoy a challenge. So, um, you know, there were there were definitely a lot of tears shed <laughs> throughout yes. the three year process. But yeah. overall, I mean, I'm one of those people that says yes, I enjoyed law school, which is not the oh. response that you get from everyone. <laughs> no, not from me. <laughs> I'm always very honest. Like I've always wanted to be a lawyer. But law school was definitely a means to an end. It wasn't something that I like looked forward to and enjoyed. I thought there would be more intellectual curiosity with the students I went with, but I think so many students are just so overwhelmed and shell-shocked <laughs> that they lose sight of curiosity and just try to make it to the end. But you know, it went well for you. Didn't you graduate at the top of your class? I was number two. <laughs> number two, that's the top of the class? That yeah, is the top um, of the class as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> Yeah, I made it work for me. So yeah, it was definitely a challenging but a rewarding experience. And I think the point you make about intellectual curiosity is a really, it's something that I think about a lot because I don't think I experienced it a ton during my law school experience or conversations very much centered 
on the law and not on the larger like societal implications of what we're talking about um and i think for me the reason i didn't necessarily engage with that intellectual curiosity is because of like just how overwhelming the experience was for me and all of it was so new and now thinking back on and obviously the way i approach my practice now um I very much think about those bigger picture issues, but it certainly was not part of the conversation for me during my law school experience. Yeah. And then fun fact, you were in law school with your twin sister. So did she get the benefit of you having been there first and being able to guide her in that process? Yeah. I don't want to speak for her, but that's definitely something she says a lot. She started... Yeah, she started law school a year after me. Um, So she had just, even going in, had like the experience or knowing what like, the struggles that I encountered during my first year and how to approach the studying and just like, all the questions that I had no answers to going in, she was able to like benefit from my experiences. So yeah, I think it did help her and it gave her access to information in a way that I didn't have entering the, the program. Yeah, and um, you know, obviously, one of the reasons I know is because we met when you were an intern, we were, when I was clerking for a judge, and then I would see your sister around town, and like all of us commented, like we thought we saw you somewhere, and you're like, it was probably my sister, and that's how we found out. We're like, well, that explains a lot. <laughs> but both of you were gracious and would just smile because um, you, I guess, you got used to it after a while. So, um, speaking of that internship, after that, what was your job search like after law school? Um. So when I was in law school, my first summer, I did an internship at the courthouse in Tampa, working with staff attorneys and judges there. Um, And shortly after I concluded that internship, I heard that they were hiring for a part-time law clerk, a a law student to go work as a law clerk. And I ended up getting that job. So during law school, I was working part-time at the court, working with staff attorneys who worked for the judges to help them conduct research and draft orders and so on. Um, and I held that job up until my last semester of law school when I did an externship at the federal courthouse and when I met you. Mm-hmm. Um, and in my mind, I was like, I'm gonna graduate, I'm gonna study for the bar, I'm gonna take the bar, and then I will start thinking seriously about the job prospects because searching for a job while studying for the bar felt kind of overwhelming to me. And so in my mind, I was like, let me just take things one step at a time. Um, but when I was studying for the bar, somebody at the, the courthouse reached out to me and told me they were hiring for a staff attorney. Um, it was work that I enjoyed when I was in law school. I felt like I got to learn a lot about the law and about working with judges and learning skills that would ultimately help me be a better practitioner um, to get a really good grasp of the way things work. Um, And so I ended up applying for that job and my first job out of law school and I started shortly after the bar exam was as a staff attorney at the 13th Circuit Court in Tampa working for um, criminal division judges on research and, you know, drafting orders and advising them on how to rule on a variety of matters. That's awesome. And you know, one of the points of the program is to help get students into judicial clerkships because of just what you said. You get so much information about how judges think. You get to see how other lawyers argue and learn from it, from the good and the bad. And the ugly. <laughs> I'm sure if you like me, 
you saw some ugly. We can't give you the specific examples, but we saw some things that we thought, probably not a good look, probably not a good strategy. Um, and so now um, you're doing work with the Southern Poverty Law Center, which is connected still to criminal law because you were a public defender between your job mm -hmm. at the courthouse and the Southern Poverty Law Center. Were you always interested in criminal law? Did you see it connected to your um, initial purpose for going to law school? Yeah, I mean, like I said, when I started law school, I didn't know exactly what I wanted to do. It was kind of like I had this vague notion in mind that I wanted to, a way to like advocate on behalf of victims of injustice. But through the job that I got during law school, working in the criminal court, um, that was one way that I started learning about the really harsh injustices of our criminal legal system. And, you know, there are very specific examples that come to my mind of things related to like really harsh sentencing um, and the unavailability of post-conviction relief that really struck me as a law student and got me thinking that maybe this is the field that I want to work in. And also during law school, I took a class by, um, his name is Professor Adam Tabruge, who taught a course on the death penalty seminar. And that was also a very eye-opening class. We talked a lot about the death penalty, but also about broader issues in the criminal legal system. Um, so those two things really like kind of set my mind on like, this is the area that I want to stick in. Um, and that's what led me to the public defender's office. But even going to the public defender's office, I was really passionate about doing indigent defense and advocating on behalf of people um, who couldn't otherwise obtain a lawyer, but also was interested in like working toward bigger picture reforms um, and thought, well, there's no way I can do that if I don't know what it's like in the trenches. And so for me, like being a public defender was a really important part of that. Um, and then eventually I came to the Southern Poverty Law Center where I work, you know, I'm part of our criminal justice reform practice group and my work almost exclusively focuses on issues inside of Florida's prisons and conditions of confinement. And that's the piece that really brings me back full circle to why I ended up going to law school. Um, one of the really big issues in Syria, my parents' home country, is um, the way people are imprisoned and disappeared in prisons and like the conditions in prisons and torture in prisons. And obviously I'm not working to combat conditions in Syrian prisons, but there's a lot of parallels in terms of like injustices and even like conditions that amount to torture, even if it's not actual torture techniques. Um, and so that like really doing the work that I do now makes me feel like I came full circle from like my initial calling to come to law school and then the, the work that I'm doing as an attorney. Yes, and the prison population is a group that really gets ignored because people see them as, well, they commit a crime, they're quote unquote doing their time, but they're still human beings. They still have rights under uh, the U.S. Constitution and the several state constitutions. But it is very easy for certain things to occur because a lot of people aren't paying attention. They're not a group people tend to be focused on. So the work that you're doing is really important. And I'm glad that you were able to come full circle by getting that job.
And so you've been a board member now for Journey to Esquire Scholarship and Leadership Program since before there was a board, right? Before we were incorporated or anything. And so, um, and you've seen several of our interns and our scholars come through and reflecting on your own experience. What advice do you have to offer to new and future law students? Not being afraid to stick true to who you are. Um, even if that's like the unpopular or non-conventional way of doing things in this profession. Um, one thing that I've been reflecting on a lot over the last couple of months is how our entire legal system and this profession is really built on a foundation of white supremacy. Um, and that leads to a lot of the norms or things that we accept as norms in the profession in terms of how people are supposed to look and how people are supposed to act and how you engage with clients. Um, you know, it's oftentimes very paternalistic rather than like empathetic and, and understanding. Um, and all of that to say, I think a lot of the lessons that I've learned over my five years of practice are like not being afraid to stick true to who I am and doing things the way that I believe them to be right just because the profession tells me otherwise or just because that's not, that's the way I see people doing things differently. Um, you know, as a Muslim woman who wears the hijab, it's obviously a very obvious part of my appearance and this is obviously not the way lawyers are supposed to look traditionally, right? Um, and so for me, that, that's always been something unavoidable. Like, this is the way that I dress, this is the way that I cover, and it's a very important, important part of being who I am. It's an important part of who I am, and being a lawyer wasn't going to change that for me. But there's also, like, more subtle ways that I've had to learn to, like, push back or be, like, be confident in speaking to my truth and what I'm comfortable with. Um, and not sacrificing who I am in the name of like fitting in as a part of the profession. And it, it's not hard, I'm sorry, it's not easy. It's oftentimes very hard. <laughs> yeah, I was gonna say, I, I'm, I'm guessing that is a hard thing to do because I've yeah. had to do it um, in many ways. Even just wearing my hair like this, curly is like a big deal or out or um, when I first started, you know, looking young, being a young black woman walking in, I'd had to convince several people that I am a lawyer. I'm here to represent the client and, um, you feel like, okay, I'm doing everything right, but I don't fit what people think a lawyer should look like. And so um, I'm having to do this extra work and it's an extra burden. So, um, and my approach has always been advice to young, um, new lawyers, young people is um, understand that you can present as yourself the way you want to, there's gonna be consequences. And if you're okay with those consequences, go ahead and do it. And do it. And to me, if that presentation is extraordinarily important to you, the way hijab is for you, for, for me, you know, natural women with, with our natural hair is a big movement and people think it's, what's the big deal? Well, the big deal is for centuries, we were told we couldn't do that. So we're trying to normalize it, just like you're trying to normalize hijab and we're trying to normalize young people and women and, um, you know, having different standards be acceptable instead of one standard that everyone has to conform mm -hmm. to but it like you, like you said it is um tough it does take courage and bravery and do you have any stories you'd like to share about any particular instances when that has occurred or any other thing you want to share about religious diversity since we're on that topic yeah um 
there's a couple of things that come to mind. Um, and, you know, I, I mentioned that some of the things that I struggle with are really, or not struggle with, parts of this, like, conversation are really obvious, like my hijab, but some things are more subtle. And, um, you know, as a practicing Muslim, I pray five times a day. Um, and that usually necessitates or ideally involves having a private space to pray in. Um, and for me, when I was, you know, a law student and a younger attorney, I wasn't always comfortable, you know, when I'm at an event or at a function asking somebody for a private place to pray um, or being like, can you make sure to accommodate the Muslims in the room so that, you know, we're at a day long event, I'm going to need to pray during the day. Is there, will there be a private place for me to pray? Um, and so I used to just like, find solutions for myself and wander off and take a break when I needed to and find an abandoned corner and hope that nobody would like come interrupt me when I was in my prayer and it was always like like I felt like not that I was ashamed like I was hiding and I didn't want to have the uncomfortable conversation of trying to explain to somebody why I'm prostrating on the ground right Mm -hmm. um even though that's something that's like a really important part of who I am um and but that's something that over time I've like developed the courage or the strength um, or the confidence to, you know, ahead of a program, emailing the organizers and being like, hey, is there going to be a place to pray? And I've had really positive reception on a number of incidents, a number of occasions where like, oh yes, like for sure we'll designate a room for you and go to an event and actually there'll be a sign for like Muslim prayer room or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, Another thing, like, also as a, a practicing Muslim, I don't drink alcohol. Um, That's a and big we, one. <laughs> yeah, and we exist in a profession, and obviously now in the age of COVID, people aren't getting together for happy hours like they used to, but virtually all social functions revolved around alcohol and coming together for happy hours. And, um, you know, not only do I not drink, I'm also not comfortable in situations where I'm surrounded by people um, who are drinking and getting intoxicated. And so like navigating around that and just like sidestepping opportunities for networking and opportunities where people get to like make connections because the default setting was one that I was not comfortable in. Um, But that's also something that I've grown more comfortable speaking about. And like, I think that will always continue to be a part of the profession because that's what it's a setting that the majority is comfortable in but I found that people are willing to be like okay we'll also create alternate like ways to get together so that not every single event is one that people like you feel excluded because they don't participate in in that aspect of the event yes and if you're in a situation where you're the one or the only we've had these kinds of talks before during journey to Esquire like if you might be the first observant Muslim person that joins a group, you know, whether it's your employer or a particular bar association or some other group of people that are meeting up. And then, so you have to be the one to educate. You might not want to, (laughs) but sometimes we have to be the ones who educate the other group so that they're aware. And then we offer them an alternative so that they can easily kind of decide whether or not they're going to be inclusive because not everyone is going to be, but at least now you know where they stand. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, you and I both love Maya Angelou and she said, you know, do the best you can, but once you know better, do better. And so sometimes we can help by helping them know better and allowing them an opportunity 
to do better. And if they don't, then, you know, you, you have some decisions to make about <laughs> whether you will right. continue to be in the group. So, yeah. So, awesome. So, um, we're at the end of the podcast. I just want to ask you one more question. If you can talk about, you know, why you decided to be on the board and be a part of this project, Journey to Esquire. Sure, yeah. Um, so, I still remember the first conversation we had about this project, and it was still like an idea in your mind. We got together for lunch, and you're like, hey, Sumei, I'm thinking about this thing. What do you think? And I was automatically very, very excited. Um, like I mentioned earlier, I went to Coley Law School in Tampa, which is one of the two schools that we cater this program to. Um, and I really experienced as, like during law school, when I was seeking out internship opportunities, and then even more so as a young lawyer looking for jobs, um, what it meant to graduate from a law school that people did not respect or didn't, the name didn't carry the same way, even as Stetson that has like locally has a very strong reputation. Um, and like having to fight for myself and like prove my worth. And oftentimes it felt like working like a billion times harder than other folks to prove that I'm qualified. And I'm like, I can do the job regardless of what the, the name on my diploma says or what perceptions you have or what the perception employers have about what that law school name means. Um, so I like automatically viewed this as this program as a way to potentially pay it forward and help other students graduating from the same law school navigate those struggles and also as an opportunity to kind of like help develop and solidify the fact that graduates from my law school are strong, capable, competent attorneys who not only can excel like in the actual work, but also give back to, to the legal community. Um, so it was that, and then also just generally being a minority attorney and coming from an underrepresented background in the profession and knowing the struggles that come with that, just generally kind of like instilled within me a, desire or like looking for an outlet to be able to give back to other um, rising lawyers and help them navigate their struggles, even if they're not the same ones that I experienced, but you, you can oftentimes use the same tools as we've been discussing today to, right. to navigate different sorts of struggles. So. Absolutely. And you know, when I started the program, I didn't, like being a professor at Cooley was the farthest thing from my mind. It was more kind of like when you were an intern and every intern that I've come in contact with, I always kind of try to give them some advice and mentor them. And a lot of the students have really kind of um, taken to that because they felt like they didn't quite get it in other places. And I just figured, why not formalize what I'm doing? Because I'm already right. doing it, right? And I feel like I'm repeating the same thing. And I kept reading articles and sending them to people. And I'm like, I can just kind of package this and see if there are students who are willing to um, take on the, the extra work of having to read all these things, practice these techniques, reflect on it. And from what we're hearing from the graduates, we had two sets of graduates so far, they find it very, very helpful and they're doing very well. So we're excited about that. Yeah. Thank you so much, Sameya, for joining us today for the podcast. We will be interviewing all of the board members. So Sameya is the first. If you um, want more information about the program, you go to journeytoesquire.com. You can find us on all the platforms, including YouTube, where podcasts are shared. Share, like, subscribe. 
and we'll see you next time. Thanks, Amaya. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks for tuning in to another great episode of Journey to Esquire, the podcast. Support, share, subscribe. And for more, visit www.journeytoesquire.com.